This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton will not be pursuing the Commonwealth Games in 2030. The mayor made a plea, a last plea uh, for support last night to seek information and costs and benefits and what it's all about before saying no. Joining us now to talk all about this, Fred Eisenberger is with us, mayor of the city of Hamilton. He is here now. Uh, Fred, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Always a pleasure, Scott. So, uh, uh, seeking information, what exactly was the objective? Where were we with this? And can Council now kind of make a decision on something that's happening in 2030? Well, then that wasn't the uh, that wasn't where we were at. Uh, we were what we were at is you know, authorize our staff to can explore the opportunity, talk to federal provincial partners. Are they interested? Uh, are they prepared to back a bid in Ontario and for Hamilton? Uh, just gather the information. Give us uh, you know all the facts and figures. Talk about uh, the legacy pieces that might come out of this. Uh, is McMaster interested as they have been in the past on the aquatic side? You know what other needs do we have in our community? that uh, could benefit from uh, you know the legacies uh, you know pieces left after a pan or after games and so um i thought it was a reasonable uh, objective to get the information uh, not to decide whether we're in or whether we're out but just get enough information so we could make an informed decision um you know council in its wisdom uh, decided that uh, they didn't want any more information that uh, they're they're tired of bids and bids processes and uh, just don't want to take another uh, another potential big project on, and they're they're thinking. And some of the arguments I heard was that you know, the moment you say go gather information, it's almost like a commitment. Um, you know, I don't agree with that, but notwithstanding, that's where uh, some of the opinion was, and uh, council and its wisdom decided collectively to not proceed at this time. Now, having said that. Uh, you know, this is happening in 2030. Um, you know, there will be another term of council, and uh, you know, the next term of council could decide to uh, pursue if they so choose at that point in time. Uh, the, the, obviously, uh, I'm guessing most people the reaction to this would be cost. How much would it cost to just explore this? Well, not much at all. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we've got staff. Uh, they have uh, they have day to day duties. Uh, this would be one one of the duties that they would perform uh, in in kind of the course of their work. So we're not talking about uh, you know letting a whole bunch of costs kind of kind of get get added up here in terms of a bid process. There's no bid. There is just gathering of information. Now we ask our staff to do that every day on a whole range of issues. To make sure that we uh, we can make informed decisions, so there there was no added costs uh, associated with this. This was something that was going to be on someone's desk, and they were going to be working that, in and amongst other things that they were going to doing they, they would be doing on a day to day basis. That's generally the way it works, until such time as it becomes uh, an endeavor that we've committed to, and then it becomes uh, you know a an issue that. Uh, Costs will add up, but costs are generally borne through the bid process and and, and by other levels of government. And you know, as a, as the Pan Am experience, uh, you know, identified, uh, you know, we we put in sixty million dollars to get a a stadium replaced. Notwithstanding all of the foo for all around that, the bottom line is we managed to do and replace the stadium at one third the cost of the local taxpayers that they would otherwise have had to bear if they had to pick up 100% of the cost, which was in an order of about $180 million. So that's a legacy benefit coming out of a Pan Am Games that was funded by mostly the province and the feds. And our $60 million contribution got us a new stadium that we otherwise would not have been able to afford uh, from the local taxpayer. 
Uh, do you think people realize why we do this? Do you think people realize what you just said there? Because lots will say, we don't need this. There's no reason to do this. There's uh, there's no benefit into the city. It just ends up costing more money than, than what it was initially thought. Uh, how come we're, we don't do a better job of selling the benefits? And, I mean, you know, you said it yourself, the Pan Am Games, there's the stadium. And as you mentioned, lots of debates there. But at the end of the day, we wouldn't have it if it wasn't for those games. Why? Why is this? Um, uh, why is this not being uh, conveyed to the public? Why do they not get this? Do you think? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, obviously, if, we, if you don't get an opportunity to gather all their information and uh, and get at get that out to the public, uh, I mean, if you if you say don't don't get more info, don't get the info that's important for us to make an informed decision, then you know you can't really relay anything to the public. But the bottom line is that uh, games are. A, a, a very popular and, uh, uh, I think, important way of making infrastructure investments. The uh, federal and provincial governments do them because they get a return on their investments uh, by virtue of uh, the work that's done to upgrade uh, facilities, uh, the taxes that gets returned to the province and the, and the federal government in terms of income taxes and all the employment that it creates. I mean, there's a whole range of spill-off effects that create benefit uh, for all levels of government notwithstanding the fact that they have to make an investment to achieve the return. And so that's always the case. And, uh, and you know, uh, people always hearken back to the Olympic experience in Montreal and the, you know, horrendous costs. And, you know, you can point to, I think, maybe Russia of late, where they invested billions and billions of dollars, probably uh, as a lost leader. That is not the habit that uh, Canadians have been into. Uh, the games of recent have been uh, very cost-effective. They've left behind significant legacy uh, investments uh, in Toronto and in Vancouver in terms of uh, athletes' villages that get turned into residential uh, housing units uh, after the uh, the games are over. I mean, there's a whole range of benefits, and it's always a, a, an issue of cost-benefit analysis. But you can't do the analysis if you don't gather the information. Uh how much of this, uh, well, I guess it's all political, uh, in the sense that, you know, we can only handle one project at a time. We're working on the LRT now, Mayor. What are you doing? Holy smokes, let's pull it back. How much of, how much of this is backlash from the LRT? Uh, I, I think that's part of it. I think, uh, you know, people are a little fearful of, uh, you know, big projects that... Uh, have a, a big price tag, but also, you know, very, very big benefits, even though uh, it is not a price tag that lands on the local taxpayer. It's being funded by the general taxpayers in the entire province of Ontario. And so I, mean, I don't want to rehash the whole LRT debate, but, you know, these uh, these kinds of uh, uh, the argument has been for a long time that we don't take advantage of what's available in the federal provincial side for funding in Hamilton. Hmm. And here we are now taking advantage of that, and we're getting royally beat up for doing it by in some quarters. I think generally people understand the value of this investment, like LRT or or uh, you know even the Pan Am Games, if they get if they get the opportunity to get the full picture. Uh, but in this instance, uh, they're not getting that opportunity. And even you know on the LRT side, it's been very difficult to get to get people to understand and appreciate the fullness of the benefit. Hmm. And we continue to do that, and we'll, we'll, we're going to have to continue to do that until the shovels are in the ground. Uh, do you find, are you surprised that this decision by council at this time in, Ham- in, in Hamilton's renaissance, like, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I could have seen this, but it, it, it's, it's new now. There's a different vibe down there. Are you surprised? No, and I, I think it's part of, of uh, you know, this 
kind of increasing level of confidence that maybe we've got enough going on that uh, we don't need to add another another uh, you know complicating uh, project on top of everything that's going on. I mean, you know, of recent we've and, and you know the, the the confluence of uh, the Amazon uh, issue, uh, the LRT that's already in place, the the, wa- the waterfront development that uh, is just at the RFQ and RFP stage, ready to uh, go to a, b- a bidding process for you know 1,200 units on our waterfront. I mean, there are, there is a lot going on in Hamilton, but. You know, I maintain, as one councillor said last night, we we can walk and talk and chew and juggle at the same time. Uh, we you know we can manage all of these projects. We have good people working on them. Um, there's no reason to dismiss anything out of hand, uh, and there's every reason to make an assessment of uh, you know what's what's going to have long-term lasting value for the taxpayers of the city of Hamilton. That's the foundation of our decision making. It should be, and uh, in, in the absence of information, you'll never get there. So. I think the weight of the projects that are on the table right now certainly had a bearing, and um, you know, and I just I respect that. I mean, I think uh, you know we we do have to measure how much can we do and how quickly can we move and how much resource, staff resources can we employ. I think this one was a relatively benign uh, you know opportunity to gather information, not costing a whole lot, not taking up an awful lot of staff time, and just getting to a point of uh, bringing enough information to the table to make an informed decision. Imagine what 2030 would look like if that all came together, because the LRT, of course, would be in full swing by then. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a healthy prospect. I would say, uh, Scott, that it's, uh, you know, there's an opportunity at the next term of council to reconsider that, if that's uh, what council wants to do at that point. Uh, it may be a new council, maybe a new mayor, who knows? Uh, so it's, uh, it's 2030 is when the event actually happens. There's still, you know, opportunity to reconsider and uh, reassess the opportunity uh, if, uh, if we get past this uh, council term. Can't be reconsidered this term. So, uh, you know, for the next year or so, it'll be off the table. But, uh, you know, we're, 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 long away, we're, we're long enough away out from the, the, the event itself that there's still, if there's a desire to, to look at some facts and figures and come up with some opportunity ideas. Can something happen that may may counsel, or allow council to revisit this? Could something trigger that? Well, I mean, it's uh, possible. And, like, uh, you know, if the, if the community at large says, uh, you know, we think we, think we ought to, you ought to look at this a little more significantly, um, you know, that could be an opportunity for people to reconsider, but uh, I, I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, I, I just don't see the uh, the avenue where folks are going to step back from where they were and kind of say, well, let's just change gears and go back, back to on, uh, get back onto the Commonwealth uh, train. And I don't see, to be, to be honest, in the absence of information in the broader community, uh, not understanding the fullness of the benefits, I don't see a great community, uh, you know, outcry of, like, you know, we must go after the Commonwealth Games. Right. But there is a there is a strong sporting tradition in Hamilton. You know, we're going to have the volunteer sports appreciation dinner in uh, in, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we aspire to uh, having a football team, uh, you know, ongoing, and uh, soccer is uh, on the horizon. And uh, we we want to encourage healthy and active uh, lifestyles in our community, and sports is one way of doing that. And uh, there's been a strong t- tradition in Hamilton of not only inventing the Empire Loyalist Games that became the Commonwealth Games, but a strong t- tradition of using sports to engineer, engineer and uh, encourage healthy uh, healthy lifestyles uh, lifestyles in uh, in our young people and uh, good behavioral habits and uh, mentoring from volunteers in our community for all of the sports that happen uh, throughout our great city. 
And uh, that that can all be encouraged by you know aspiring to a Commonwealth Games that uh, is something that uh, athletes can shoot for. All right, let's talk, uh, because obviously you mentioned lots of distractions, including one being Amazon. We heard that you have to have a, a city of a million people that we simply do not qualify. Why are we pursuing this? Uh, Chris Murray was talking about this on the news. What sort of angle do we have on this? Well, I mean, uh, you know, if we're, if we're looking at uh, Niagara, Hamilton, Brantford, our metropolitan area certainly has a, a million or more. It's probably closer to two million in terms of population. So uh, I, I don't think the population issue is a big factor. Uh, I think we qualify from that from that perspective. I know in Toronto they're looking at a kind of a broader partnership to apply for. I think the bigger issue is uh, what is Canada and the provincial government prepared to back uh, in terms of uh, you know proposals from certain communities. And uh, my understanding is that Ontario is considering three or four, and we're one of them. So that's good news, and I think uh, we have the uh, the nearness to an international airport. We have. Uh, close proximity to the border crossings, both to the east and the west of us. Uh, we have uh, land available in an urban setting that uh, could very well be suitable for a uh, a center of this uh, nature. And, uh, and we certainly have a talent base uh, here and in uh, in institutions that are training people in uh, in technology and technological engineering and computer sciences uh, in Mohawk and Epic Master. And you know, you can stretch a little and say Sheridan College that. Uh, that turns out a, a lot of talent that uh, could very well be uh, suitable employees for this uh, this new Amazon center. So I think we have all the attributes. Attributes. Uh, I think we need to uh, put our best foot forward. And uh, you know what? Uh, uh, as good a place as any is Hamilton with all of our advanced technology uh, drive that's happening in our community. I think we, uh, we are a good place for Amazon, Amazon to land and certainly a great place for them to uh, interconnect with the world through our airport and through our transportation networks that run right through the center of our city. So what started as sounding like a far-fetched idea now seems that it is worth the effort. Do you honestly think that it is? Or, or, even, or, or even just for the exercise itself? Uh, look, I mean, I, I think there's two things. I mean, first, uh, you know, if, if you go through this exercise, you'll certainly test yourself in terms of what you... Uh, what assets you have and and how valuable you, they are to uh, others that are looking at Hamilton as an opportunity. So that's a that's a good thing to do, notwithstanding. Uh, Amazon is a global corporation that is going to land somewhere in North America in another uh, location. Uh, there's no reason if we have the uh, if we have our, if we can fulfill the criteria and we believe that Hamilton is a good center for that kind of activity and would be a Good opportunity for Amazon and a good opportunity for uh, Hamilton and area to uh, benefit from that kind of uh, technological employment. Um, then uh, you know it's a, it's going to be a worthwhile exercise, and uh, I don't think we would pursue this had we not heard from the province or the federal government that Hamilton was one of the areas that would be uh, part of their consideration. So uh, I think we're in we're in we're in good hands in that sense and uh, I, I think there's every reason for Hamilton to put its best foot forward. Very exciting. Uh, Fred Eisenberger has been with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. Mayor, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The RCMP are warning Canadians of yet another scam. You know, uh, we remember playing the call that I received uh, last year or so and uh, phoning the number back and having a great deal of fun with these people that were trying to, of course, extort us. And um, uh, oddly enough, uh, I, I played a call for everybody that I received on uh, 
my answering machine at home. I, I've, I've actually got one on my cell phone. I got it when I was on holidays. And I tried to find it so I could play it for you, but I must have accidentally deleted it. Um, but yeah, even your cell phones, you're getting the same. I got the same sort of thing that I had played you last year. It was bizarre. Well, now there's another scam. This time it involves traffic tickets. And it looks very authentic, meaning that they actually take the logo of the police service, this case the RCMP, and make it look like it's the RCMP that's after you. You can imagine the reaction. Uh, Let's bring in Jessica Gunson. She is the acting call center and intake unit manager, Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, and is with us now. Hello, Jessica. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Scott? I'm great. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Tell everybody what the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center is. The Canadian Anti-Fraud Center is an RCMP-led repository call center that collects information on mass marketing frauds and identity theft. So we work with the OPP, Competition Bureau of Canada, and we take calls from across the country, uh, U.S. and abroad, primarily from Canadians, on all kinds of mass marketing frauds. And the very one that you're talking about is one that we have received calls on. So uh, it show, uh, it sh- your department shows no sign of slowing down. This just keeps getting more different and more bizarre with every passing day, it seems. For sure. So tell us about this scam. How does it work? So essentially what happens is that a consumer will receive an email, and it appears with the RCMP logo. And it, uh, the title, there could be a, a variation of, of subject headers, but it will say you've been issued with a traffic infringement. And it will give a little reason. It's usually negligent, negligent uh, driving or a speed fine. will provide a case number. They'll give a date of issue and amount, uh, the amount that's due. And then there'll be a link asking you to double-click for your photo evidence and to download the copy of your ticket. So that link is really what's important. Sometimes they can create, um, uh, or sorry, they can um, have a malicious link to a virus or a program that will be downloaded onto your computer or your your mobile device. Uh, Or it will be a form to collect personal information, such as your name, your date of birth, address, which can then, of course, be used to steal your identity. So... uh, it does look very authentic in the, in terms of they've got the logo there uh, with the RCMP. And what consumers need to keep in mind is that no police or government agency would ever send you an email for a traffic infringement. Hmm. And we, we saw these a little while ago, they, they, and they do change. And in, in one that we've seen previously here, it had the government of Canada with the logo, the flag, and it, it had all the, the infraction information. And it said that you were being charged with driving 30 miles per hour. Oh so there's my. subtle clues, mm. and sometimes there's grammar errors. There'll be spelling errors. So there's little, you got to really look for those subtle clues that this is not from a government or police body. Um, they will sometimes include a picture, so it's not actually a link that you need to click on, but the actual picture itself is contained there. And it could be a common street. We see the same picture uh, over and over. And, you know, of course, it's taken at night. Uh, it can be difficult to pinpoint, but consumers that aren't aware that this is uh, a scam may click and give that information. They may be downloading um, malicious link or software onto their, their computer or device. 
Uh, when, and when you think about it, it, it's it's pretty cunning on their part in the sense that they're not asking you for in, for any information at this point. So you don't, you know, your red flag perhaps doesn't go up yet. Uh, that they're just uh, asking you, uh, here, go ahead, look at this, you'll see the ticket. And it's clicking on that link that starts this whole chain, right? Absolutely. Uh, and and it's, it's, that happens, right? You're, you're browsing through your emails. And even if you're half paying uh, attention to what you're doing, you see this and, oh, is it, is it a son or daughter that's maybe been driving and been caught? If someone's mm-hmm. pulled your vehicle or driven out of town, is this something, I think there's always that thought in, in a consumer's head, well, could this be real? And I think that's when you need to listen to, to your gut and, and watch for those red flags. Is that you got to think when, when you get pulled over for a ticket, which guilty as charged, I have been. Um, do they ever ask you for an email address? Yeah. No. Yeah. There's no way they ha- they have your email address. So it's and you know it's it's telling family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, getting the word out. If you receive something like this. Say, hey, listen, you're not going to believe this. this is the email it looks like it's coming from the police, or it, uh, it could even be a manip- municipal office that it that it appears to be coming from. And you have to just stop and realize that they just simply don't conduct business that way. You know, it's interesting too. Uh, you talked about the dialogue, or even um, you know the language that they use when when trying uh when trying to get you with these scams i remember the one that i uh that we played here uh, last year that i got on my answering machine in regard to Can- the canada revenue agency mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and you know they were very demanding and said you need to call your lawyer you need to do this and they they said they were from the canada revenue agency but they said that there's been a problem with your tax papers as opposed to your mm-hmm. tax return and it just, just the language didn't, you know, I mean, it just, it just, you know, I mean, obviously as soon as I heard it, I realized what it was, but sure. there are certain keys like that within the language that, that sometimes can give you a hint, right? Absolutely. And, and that very call, we're, we are still inundated with consumers calling about that CRA scam. It is still very, very present. Uh, it is very threatening. And, and we've talked to consumers every day and those with the older population that, that tell us how rattled they are to get this phone call from someone claiming to be from the government, from and they will often use they're from the investigative branch. So right. you know you're being you're being looked at. You're going to be charged. It's very very frightening for consumers that when they get that call, kind of out of the blue that that's not expected, and they're being told. And, and in cases where they could be new to our country, that you could be possibly deported if you don't right. you know go out and buy that iTunes card or that Steam card, which is essentially what these these scammers are looking for. And when it gets to the point where they have uh, notices in stores where you can buy uh, iTunes cards and, su- and, and such saying, hey, if, if you're sending this to a government scam thing or, or you know, like the, they're warning you right. about it where you can buy these cards. I mean, think, you know, if it's got to that point, how prevalent this must be. Absolutely. And I know even just locally here in, in North Bay where we're centered, uh, our corner store has it listed right there at the front counter, our, yeah. our local pharmacy as well and so which is great to see hopefully you know that that is helping um we have no way to to gauge that but the fact that we can get retailers on board and to identify if someone's coming up and and buying a stack of gift cards uh, you know 10 or more that again there's a red flag hey are you aware of the scam that's going on and really that's that's the key to to preventing mass marketing fraud and stopping these guys is to help consumers and businesses to recognize it and, and that's really our slogan here is to recognize, report, and reject it. And that is the key. So when they know ahead of time, they can stop it. And, and the scammers then don't get your money. They don't get your information. 
and it's simply word of mouth. We get many people that say, you know what, my neighbor told me about this, and yeah. I, I knew I had to call. Yeah, it's really important. Well, you know, even when we talked about it last year, we we received calls from people who had done the same thing, who had fallen for it, and unfortunately got thousands of dollars in the cards and, and did the exact same thing. I mean, it's amazing how prevalent it is. Is this just the RCMP that this uh, we're having this issue with now, or have other police services seen this sort of thing happen? Uh, no, there's other police services that, that we are aware of. I, I believe um, there was one uh, phishing email approximately a year ago, I, I believe, that had the Ottawa Police Service listed mm-hmm. uh, as that. And then, like I said, there was one that just had the Government of Canada. So it really had no specific location indicated, but using the logo and the font. And, I, and again, right. sometimes the, the scammers are good. They will duplicate. But again, in that one, saying you're being charged driving 30 miles per hour yeah uh and, and, you know and that that's really that's your that's your 100 percent proof that it's not real yeah exactly <laughs> uh, you know i got it I, I i got one again a couple of months ago on my cell phone this time and i swear it was the same voice of the guy a year ago like it's amazing and i've even heard that these people will go back and try and retrace their steps and try to get you again or try to get people that they've already that they've already stung the first time we do get repeat calls. We get calls from consumers that have lost money. Then there are, it could be six months to a year later. They're getting a follow-up call. Uh, sometimes it's a recovery. Hey, listen, we found the bad guys that stole your money, but we need you to pay the, the retainer fee to the lawyer. Can you send us another $500? <sighs> Depending on the scam. But they, and, and they do compile lists, and, and I'm sure that they would sell those lists um, to other you know networks. Sure. If there's different scam groups that are operating that could be valuable, especially if a consumer has lost money. Um, then that name and phone number is very valuable. And if they know a backstory of how they, if they lost money to a prize scam, uh, let's say in the tune of five thousand dollars, well, listen, we're, we're this, you know, we're Canadian border um, security, and we've caught the people, but now we need you to pay this recovery fee, this retainer fee. It could be any reason, and unfortunately, we know of people that have paid it. You know, it takes kahunis to uh, say you're the RCMP and uh, start committing fraud that way. It's one thing to fraud people with water heaters, this, that, and the other, or, or, or fake phone scams. But man, you gotta, you know, you gotta think if you're gonna put a police service logo on your on your scam that you're gonna draw attention to yourself. No, uh, for sure. But their end goal is to make it look as legitimate as possible. And if that means stealing a logo, stealing a name, we've seen that done many times before, even in going back to the CRA calls, even to go as far as that. There's a very common CRA phishing email that's gone out. We usually see it around tax time, claiming that, that you have a refund of you know $387 or usually a small amount and click on this link for information or to follow up. And, and, it's, and they will use the name, the same logo. And that's all for the scammer to try and make that as authentic looking as possible because when they look real, they have a better chance of stealing your money. Yeah. All right, Jessica, any tips? What should we... <laughs> I'm sure you're tired of repeating these because it seems the same old thing over and over again. But, no. but what can we be aware of? What should we be aware of? Well, number one, beware of any unsolicited email from any individual organization, especially when they're prompting you to click on an attachment or link. Uh, again, look for the spelling and the formatting errors. That's, those are your subtle clues that, that something there might not be right. You can always um, check an embedded hyperlink 
uh, in an email. If you hover your mouse over it, you'll often see a different address, and it will it won't be from from a, a bank, or it won't be recognizable mm. as a verified link. And above all, go with your gut. And if an email seems fishy, then it probably is. And you you can always um, give our office a call. We have a toll free line one eight 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 four nine five eight five zero one to report, especially if information has been given or if money has been requested for any kind of scam. And we also, if you go to our website, www.antifraudcenter.ca, you can report an incident online, and you will also see a list of fraud types. And we do try to, to promote up-and-coming scams that we're seeing here uh, throughout like a fraud alert, and, and those change monthly. So, I know the uh, objective of your center is to compile and, and gather this information and then give it to law enforcement and let them uh, try to figure it all out. That being said, uh, how, how, how difficult is it to stop these people? How difficult is it to, to, to make any sort of headway on an investigation like this? Well, yeah, we're not part of that investigative process, but because of um, the nature, especially of, of this scam, it's very difficult, especially with technology allowing um, scammers to work remotely. They can be transnational. They don't even need to be in this country to steal your money. So it makes it very, very difficult. Um, the key is to report something when it is suspicious so that that information can be passed along to law enforcement because every there, there could be one little piece of a puzzle that's missing that, that if you have lost money or have information, it can be very, very useful. Jessica Gunson has been with us, Acting Call Centre and Intake Unit Manager, Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre in North Bay, the RCMP warning Canadians of yet another scam. This one looks like an authentic RCMP traffic ticket. And they ask you to click on the link. They tell you, of course, to delete it all and report it. Jessica, thanks for the time and update. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Sean Spicer made an appearance last night on Jimmy Kimmel. Here is a clip. Validity of the election compared to looking at photos of the crowd at an inauguration. I mean, they're like, one's this and one is this. Did you try to talk him out of I, that I think line we, of we, defense? I think we, you know, there was a lot of us that wanted to be focused on, on his agenda, what he spoke about in his inaugural address. Um, so, you know, look, but he's president. He made a decision. So you have to go along. Even well, you know, though you, you, you if, even if you know, and I'm going to ask you to say whether it was or not, but even if you know the crowd wasn't bigger, you have to go, as press secretary, you have to say that it was. Look, your job as press secretary is to represent the president's voice uh, and to make sure that you are articulating what he believes uh, his vision is on policy, on issues, uh, of, of, and on other areas that he wants to articulate. Whether or not you agree or not isn't your job. Your what job is to give him advice, mm -hmm. uh, and, and which is what we would do on a variety of issues all the time. Uh, he would always listen to that advice, but ultimately he's the president. He would say, uh, I agree with you sometimes, or that's a good point, incorporate it. Or sometimes he would say, uh, depending on the issue, look, I, I know what I believe, and this is what I think the right thing to do is. And then you have to All right, that's Sean Spicer on, uh, of course, Jimmy Kimmel uh, discussing uh, his job. I think people actually like Sean Spicer. I might be wrong. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. You give uh, read her stuff at HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily, and is with us now. Hi, Alyssa. Thanks for taking the time. We enjoy when you're here. 
Oh, I like being on your show, Scott. I like what you were saying before about city building, too. Oh, don't get me started on that. I anyway, know, uh, uh, so do, do do you think Americans genuinely like Sean Spicer now? <laughs> no, I don't think they... I think that he tread a very, very solid middle line. Sean Spicer is, you know, true blue through and through and through, and, well, true red, really, and... He wasn't going to say anything that he would regret. So as a true communications pro, he stuck to a narrative. His narrative was, well, this was my job, and this is what I was asked to execute. So his opinion really didn't matter. Uh, Doing the Jimmy Kimmel show easier than standing out in front of the press when he would do a briefing? Oh, I think way easier, and I'm sure that they had to provide him with the questions. Although Kimmel, you know, doesn't always acquiesce to those type of demands. So much, much easier, much friendlier. I mean, listen, Jimmy Kimmel himself, when you want to get a big guest like that, and they call it a big get, when you want to get someone like that, you, uh, you know, the host, him or herself, will call that celebrity and make the pitch. So obviously... The pitch that they gave him was one that he agreed to and obviously knew that he would have to handle a contentious question, but not in the way that it would meet the press. So what's in this for Sean Spicer? Why would you do it? Why would you potentially set yourself up for a fall? You know what? I think that he, Sean Spicer is a smart guy and he weighed the pros and cons and he thought, you know, what do I have to lose? Well, he wasn't going to lose his job because because he already did that. Um, I think he looked at it as a way of redemption. And he did answer every question very carefully. He honestly did not get sucked in or went down the rabbit hole or chose to give his version of history. He didn't do that. So uh, um, technically... His interview was spot on. If someone was to media train him, that was a 10 out of 10. So what did you think his performance was on the show last night? You know what? I thought that it was absolutely in character. I think that if Sean Spicer all of a sudden decided to go rogue and say, yeah, you wouldn't believe what I had to deal with. I mean, the most insight we got from him was when Kimball said, you know, did you have an alert on your phone when his tweet, uh, tweet went? And Spicer looked and he went, yeah. So you knew that he was working at all hours. You knew that he provided advice of input. You knew that that advice of input wasn't always heeded to. So I think that we actually learned quite a bit what it's like to work in the White House, who really rules the the roost, and that things honestly turn on a dime. And when something turns on a dime, you turn with it. You do not turn against it. So is his reputation tarnished at all, or does this position accelerate him? Well, the way that he was answering those questions, I thought maybe he was going for a job at one of Trump's companies. (laughs) Really? uh, I think that Sean Spicer would get hired tomorrow if he wanted to. There's lots of conservative-friendly companies. There's lots of Republican-friendly companies. And let's, let's take a look at this. Here's a guy who had to wake up every morning, or maybe never went to sleep, who had to wake up every morning, face the press, and defend the indefensible. You know, anybody who is that true blue and loyal, even to a guy yeah. like Trump, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you'd hire him. You might not agree with his ideals. Honestly, you might not. But you can't disagree with how he 
held up his end of the bargain. Uh, here's a clip uh, from the show uh, last night with Jimmy Kimmel and Sean Spicer, the former U.S. press secretary, uh, talking about Saturday Night Live. Funny, that, right? That was that was kind of funny. He liked that. <laughs> Did the president? He didn't think that was funny. Uh, I, I don't think he found as much humor. <laughs> Is as he others. particularly annoyed by the fact that a woman was playing you? I, I, I really didn't ask a ton of questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I, that may have been a contributing What factor. a no-win situation that is. Like, they're making fun of me, and you're mad at me for yeah. it. And this she wins crazy. an Emmy. And then she won an Emmy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so no surprises for you here. No, not really. And I think that he showed... You know, Sean Spicer was very true to himself in this whole interview. He really showed that he has a sense of humor... He really showed that even if you don't like the guy that I represented, I'm still going to stand by him. He didn't offer a revisionist version of events. He actually offered a version as he saw them or as he will continue to see them as the way Trump would see them. So, you know, when we're talking about the size of the inauguration, he didn't even go down that rabbit hole. He did something called block and bridge. He went into the question and said, you know what? We really wanted to talk about this. We really wanted to talk about the platform and what he stood for. But, you know, at the end of the day, I could only give advice. He's the president. What so, do you... What? Sorry, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. You go ahead. What was... What do you think this pre-interview was like? Uh, what do you think the conditions were to do this interview? Because I, I remember one time... I remember uh, when I was watching it, there was one point where he was asking about the size of the inauguration. He said, I'm not going to ask you about what you thought or whatever. I, you know, I'm not going to... So clearly there were boundaries there. I think that there's always boundaries. But you know what? Kimmel doesn't have to agree to anything. And I think that they get, they set the parameters in a very, very loosey-goosey way. So as both parties know that they're going to go in different directions and you better be ready for it. I think Sean Spicer had somebody prepare him for this in the same way that he would have prepared any one of his clients or his boss for any media interview. So they said, well, you know what, he's going to go from this way, and he's going to go take a, an issue from it that way. And, he, you know, oh, I'm not going to ask you to go down that rabbit hole, but you know what, you must have thought this. And what was interesting is that, you know, anytime you want to talk with somebody and gain their trust, you develop a point of uh, similarity. And the one thing that Kimmel used, and I've never heard him use this, he says, listen, you're a Catholic, I'm a Catholic. And I thought, well, that's an interesting point where, you know, you align with somebody uh, on their religious values and their morals, which must mean, listen, I think it means one thing to Kimmel, and I think it means another thing to uh, Sean Spicer, but the technique he used was, he says, and I don't like, they were talking about the media, lumping them all in as bad people. He says, I don't like when people lump all priests into one big group, because they're not every priest is a bad priest, so therefore... Not all media can be bad media. And honestly, how could Spicer not agree with that? I thought that was a brilliant tactic. Hmm. Uh, what about Buck? What are we going to see come out of this? What's Spicer's next move? Um, some people say a book, although, I don't know. It wouldn't would be very, it? It w- would it be a very long <laughs> book? Because I could see it just being the same thing over and over and over again. Just another example of the lunacy. Just a series of oh. examples of lunacy. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd have to agree with you on that. Um, I really think that you'll see him in another job. I think it'll be with um, 
a Republican-supported firm. It might be even with one of Trump's companies. Who knows? It might even be a Breitbart. But you know what? They all protect their own. It, it, you know, Steve Bannon was on 60 Minutes, and he said, you know, those that went against us after Billy Bush versus those who were for us, the people who were against us were gone. The people who were for, for us stayed around. And I think that is very much the type of people Sean Spicer will work for. Do you think President Trump was upset at all of the attention that Spicer was getting? I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the sketch on uh, with McCarthy on Saturday Night Live was just everybody talked about that. Uh, do you think he was upset that perhaps Spicer was getting more attention than he was? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, this man is so thin-skinned. I can only imagine. And, you know, and remember, there were tweets that did go out during that and what he thought about SNL and that it was sad and whatnot. So absolutely, I think it drove him crazy. Well, to hear Spicer talk about it with Kimmel and him laughing, he thought it was funny. So clearly Spicer liked it. Uh, And then, of course, the reaction with Donald Trump, he said, well, he didn't talk about it a lot. So clearly he wasn't bringing it up. And there was no way he was going to really talk about what his boss thought. And I think that, you know, you can make your own inferences. And, and sometimes in an interview, you don't want people to make an inference. You'd rather give them the facts and set their record straight. But I think when you're dealing with Donald Trump, you're not going to put any words in his mouth. So to kind of skirt that issue uh, was probably the right thing to do. I remember seeing uh, Mooch on uh, Late Night and then Spicer does Kimmel. Uh, Compare the two. Is one better than the other? I think they're both completely different. I think Mooch was entertaining, but, you know, I think Mooch is is more of a, a caricature of himself. I think that's just, you know, kind of the way he is. Whereas Spicer you know, had more history. As short-lived as it was, it wasn't. It was more than 10 days. So he had more history and therefore perhaps more insight. Now, I will say that some of those questions did give him the opportunity to start to, you know, get on a bit of a soapbox and, and Republican and conservative thinking and really this is how we view things and this is how I still view things. So, but Kimmel was pretty good about giving him enough rope and then reining him back in when he needed to. Uh, do you think we'll see, uh, what do you think we're going to see on the next season of Saturday Night Live when things uh, gear up? Do you think, uh, how do they top last season? I mean, my goodness, they won Emmys, they got this, they got that. Uh, how, how do you think, uh, or nominated it rather, how, how do you think they're going to fare next year? You know, you always have to supersede your success. So I'm sure when these things happen and you're getting, I mean, okay, so let's look, for example, at when Tina Fey did Sarah Palin. I mean, could anything, do you think anything could have uh, topped that? Yeah, good point. And, and it really was about two or three years before it did. Yeah. Well, it was, it was quite a while, actually. How many years was it? It was four years. So, based on that, um, you know, it's like when I say for late-night TV, if the writers sit around the room, and it's not even like they have to come up with ideas anymore, all they do is open up the newspaper. There it and is. And I think that real life, there's nothing like real life. So real life will continue to present itself and make shows, satire shows like SNL and late night celebrities, late night talk shows, as uh, relevant and biting as ever. Parodies are easy to write. Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant. Uh, Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.